Hello, I'm Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to the third episode of General Intellect Unit, the podcast of the cybernetic Marxists. Uh, and this fortnight, we're looking at two uh, very interesting little essays. Uh, the first of which is a piece titled The Californian Ideology by Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron, uh, which was published in 1995. And the second of which was published much later in uh, March of 2012, uh, the title being Of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit, written by uh, David Graeber. So, Kyle, how, how did you find these pieces? Um, I, I thought they were pretty interesting and had a lot of a lot of overlap. Yeah, there's actually a lot more here than I initially expected. Um, yeah, because we had initially kind of planned to do... Um, like this, this was going to be one of the lighter episodes. We thought, oh yeah, yeah two, um, two, two essays. Yeah, easy. Um, there's actually a lot in here. Um, I'm not even that sure I fully understand it all, but uh, we're gonna go for it anyway. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've read both of these essays in the past. Like I read. I think I read the California ideology in like 2010. Uh, and uh, then I read uh, the Graeber essay uh, when it came out um, in 2012. Uh, but um, there's definitely a lot to discuss, and hmm. uh, we'll just get through it bit by bit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I think these. Uh, I think I got onto the Californian ideology uh, because it's. Uh, it supposedly forms a bit of the foundation that um, that would be explored in Adam Curtis's uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And as I was as I was looking into the kind of background of that film, I kind of got pointed towards um, this essay. Um, and then I figured the Graeber piece uh, of Flying Cars um, makes a kind of a nice pairing with a. Uh, with this, the, the, the these these two papers work really well together. Um, they sort of cover some common ground, and then they they've also got like a decent amount of material in in each of them that's um, not covered in the other. And in many cases, they're sort of pointing to the same phenomena, uh, but from slightly different angles. Um, yeah, and and in a way, kind of different positions because I feel like the California ideology was written at a point when any kind of uh, leftist thinking of any sort was uh, on the back foot and, you know, in an intensely defensive position. Um, whereas uh, in the case of Graeber's uh, essay, uh, it was after the 2007-2008 crisis, so he was kind of able to write from a perspective that was more about deflating this uh, ideology. Um yeah, and had a little bit more uh, of a cut to it than uh, the '95 essay. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I suppose let's let's dive in. Um, I think the Californian ideology opens with this kind of nice uh, beginning, where the authors outline that um, at the end of the 20th century, it, the sort of predicted convergence of media, computing, and telecommunications into hypermedia was happening, and this was a this is a major shift that was going to impact uh, the way we work and live together. Um, it's going to have like pretty pretty huge sort of ripple effects throughout all of society. Um, and as with any period of in large social change, anyone that can offer a 
simple explanation will be listened to. Um, they'll have the ears of everyone. And in this context, um, a kind of a loose uh, group of, or a loose alliance of hackers, writers, artists, and capitalists on the West Coast of the United States um, sort of defined an orthodoxy for the coming information age, um, the Californian ideology. And, um, yes, yes. I'm not sure where that term actually comes from. I wonder if they they made this term up to describe um, this this stuff in retrospect, or if it was actually bandied around at the time. That'd be interesting. To uh, figure I think out. that they coined the term. It's right. obviously a reference to Marx and Engels, mm. uh, the German ideology. Yeah, uh, that's the one. So, uh, it's it's uh, pretty on point, I think. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and this 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 ideology it combines the kind of free spirit of the hippies with the entrepreneurial uh, spirit of the yuppies. Um, it's a sort of kind of strange and often contradictory fusion of, um, you know, like I ideas that were like socially liberal and ideas that were economically liberal um, in the conservative yeah, sense. Yeah, like <laughs> the, the, the old saw of that period was uh, I'm a, I'm a fiscally conservative but uh socially liberal or socially progressive right um yeah. yeah which has turned out i think to not really be that big of a constituency in general um, <laughs> I, mean, I saw some results from the um uh, 2016 uh, election in the united states that really uh, when they were graphed out really showed that like that that kind of that sort of middle ground just really doesn't exist at all like the the vast majority of the population bifurcates into two very large groups. Um, so this is interesting in that I think this ideology of um, of media types and programmers and various other high-tech sort of people has had a very large and outsized impact on how um, the last uh, 30 years or so have actually gone. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, it has gone from being the Californian ideology to being a kind of world-spanning ideology. Um, and, and, and at the time that the essay was written, I feel like the, the authors seemed to indicate that they had the sense that it was spreading around the world, and this was something they were very concerned about. Um, but, like, at the present moment, like, we're deep into it, kind of no matter where you live. I, I feel like um, the influence in Japan has been uh, considerably muted uh, compared to some other places. Uh, however, like you still feel it even here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that would be a different topic to get into another time. But I yeah. think that uh, the influence cannot be denied. <laughs> yeah, very much. Um, and this... Um this sort of combination of these kind of like mutually contradictory kind of ideas um, kind of wrapped up in this form of libertarian politics um, in which I think the, the majority of the kind of ideology is centered around this notion of like um, the new technologies and like cyberspace and such being a kind of a new place in which people could just express themselves individually and that would have a big impact on social organization and economic organization. Um, but that th that sort of like techno boosterism uh, ignores the sort of the more atavistic features of kind of American society on the West Coast, the kind of um, a, a willing blindness to the, the racism, poverty, the economic or environmental destruction, the um, segregation and such. So it's kind of like 
it's I think it, it especially especially now rings rings very hollow. And this is the thing that the authors get at is that this is a quite a quite a hollow and um, hollow ideology that's not really doesn't have much in the way of critical content. Um, I think that's that's especially obvious now, um, a full twenty years yeah. after the piece was published. Yeah, um, and just kind of getting into exactly what they have to say, um, they say that uh, the California ideology is about naturalizing and giving a technological proof to a libertarian political philosophy and therefore foreclosing on uh, alternative futures. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of that sort of Thatcherite, there is no alternative. However, in this case, um, the alternatives are foreclosed because of technological determinism and uh, and the, the sort of um, core of it is not uh, so much uh, that kind of Thatcherite austerity as it is this sort of merger of um, libertarianism with uh, personal freedom. Uh, they say that there are three main elements to it. Uh, one is uh, cybernetics, the second is free market economics, and the third is counterculture libertarianism. Yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. Um, that's and that's that's the sort of uh, the, that that's that describes the Silicon Valley culture that we've all kind of know and and loathe <laughs> over time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, like early on in the essay, they kind of rewind back all the way to 1969 um, with the uh, confrontation at People's Park in on the Berkeley campus. Uh, Berkeley campus in which. Um, uh, was it the National Guard that kind of opened fire on on student protesters and uh, ended up killing a person, um, and and that this kind of symbolised the the direct confrontation between the kind of the square world and the counterculture, yeah, um, and kind of on if you kind of look at it like that, it's like on the one end you have this like um, you know the Reaganite uh, kind of crowd with their uh, value of private enterprise versus the hippies kind of valuing uh, social revolution. Um, but then, like, kind of in a bit of a left turn compared to what you'd expect, like, only a few decades later, those two sort of sides had kind of combined in California to give um, give this this really strange sort of, uh, uh, this really strange culture that, like, combined the left and the right um, together in this kind of really strange way. But with this, like, very strong streak of libertarianism. And the way I was kind of thinking of it in these terms of, like, it's like if you imagine your political compass, it's like the libertarian left and the libertarian right kind of fusing to kind of get end up in this kind of center libertarianism. Yeah, yeah. In a way you could describe it as a kind of uh center libertarianism for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um And on one side, like the the sort of the left or the, the people who are like inheritors to that kind of hippie spirit, the, the liberals and people who were very concerned with social movements, they saw the kind of new technological uh, world as being um, what they call like an electronic agora, uh, a, a kind of a free virtual world, like a cyberspace in which everyone would be able to uh, express themselves fully. And that would like be this big rejuvenation um, of society um and this it's like it's really rooted in a belief in the intrinsic liberating effects of technology and that's in contrast to the kind of right who 
didn't really see it in those terms. Like they saw they saw the same technological stuff happening, but they saw it as more of a terms of um, an electronic market where people would be free, not through social forces, but through the forces of um, market capitalism. Right. Yeah. And so the authors kind of attribute this um, uh, notion of like this uh, liberating technological determinism to Marshall McLuhan um, and uh, his idea that big business and big government would be overthrown by the intrinsically empowering effects of new technology on individuals. Um, So, yeah, this is. Uh, like, I don't actually, like I guess I feel kind of, uh, uh, embarrassed because I'm a Canadian and I went to a Canadian communications program, but, uh, I haven't read a ton of McLuhan because I feel like the backlash against McLuhan was so strong that, like, <laughs> he wasn't actually taught that much, even though he's, like, the most famous Canadian communication theorist ever. Yeah, this, um... um... This the, these ideas like I'm I'm not familiar with McLuhan but like it seems really quaint and, and just kind of stupid really <laughs> from from yeah the, well there was there was um like so there was more to his writings than just that for sure um, but the author sort of sees on that aspect of his writings um, and you know he was not really the only person saying this kind of stuff but he had a big media presence so i think he's a good name to kind of stick on there um because i was um i did my ma thesis about information society uh, theory in japan and uh there were a lot of sort of similar ideas floating around in that space uh in japan in the 60s as well uh so it was uh Maybe something that was in the air, but that McLuhan was able to kind of articulate um, on a large scale and probably on national television in a, a way that others weren't. Yeah, and the um, the sort of all all of that sort of idea points towards um, this sort of creation of this electron this like cyberspace kind of social utopia as the as an implementation of direct democracy within uh, within social institutions. Um, which was a kind of, yeah, it sounds sounds like a cool thing, um, certainly. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think you still see that idea kind of having currency on the left. Um, it's it's not really dead. It's just that um, the idea of cyberspace as a technology of democracy has kind of been overtaken by that sort of market logic that was was added to the discussion well i I suspect the main fault is with the notion of it being intrinsically um leaning that way um i think like on the left we sort of um definitely kind of acknowledge that um bringing people together to work together and to kind of work towards common goals you know like, like having Great communication technologies definitely helps that along, um, and the uh, this technology can be a part of building direct democracy and building um, a more egalitarian future. But it seems to be a huge mistake to believe that it just happens naturally. Like if you if you just install all the networks and wire everything up, then you naturally end up with um, a democratic and uh, egalitarian future. Yeah, it's that idea that like. Um, what's that line in uh, Serenity? Uh, <laughs> uh, 
uh, can't remember it off, uh, off the top of my head, but just this idea that, like, yeah, if you let the information out there, then, like, all the walls will fall and mm. all the regimes will topple. Um, Isn't that a thing in some... It, it, it's, it's a thing in quite a few bits of uh, science fiction where um, there's, like, a, one of the characters might, like, you know get their way into the nexus or something and like they just all they got to do is like plug their hands into the usb jacks of like the mainframe or something like that and it'll just like un unplug the kind of torrent of information or you know it's it's a it's an image that crops up again and again in um yeah this in sort of silver bullet approach to social change yeah um, oh now that i think about it the the climax of the original deus ex kind of has a lot of that as well um Oh yeah, plugging yeah. into the mainframe to kind of uh, automatically create a better future or something. Um, yeah, I mean that's uh, getting a little bit far afield, but I think it is is definitely a expression of the kind of ideas that um, were at the background of uh, this ideology in terms of its its sort of um, more like not necessarily left-wing but like communitarian and uh in a way like democratic aspect i guess you could say yeah um sort of the things that McLuhan was talking about like i feel like are definitely a background to that kind of idea of sort of like communication singularity or whatever mm. right um yeah yeah and in uh, in in that sort of context then you get this kind of rise of um what the authors title uh, the virtual class um these this like class of creatives programmers media people and such who are like absolutely central to this um technological transformation and who occupy a pretty privileged part in the, a, a privileged station in this kind of new society um but they they do some great work in pointing towards the kind of um the the contradictions of this class's uh sort of existence that like um the the members of this class are kind of often like they can't be subjected to the discipline of like um factory work uh, as previous but instead they're disciplined through uh fixed term contracts and like a, a constant precarity um so that's that's your sort of web designer you know contractor kind of um kind of occupation Right, like that. That's kind of what characterizes the existence of these um, highly skilled workers, uh, or what they call high tech artisans. Yeah, um. <laughs> and these these artisans have kind of like become trapped between the freedoms of that kind of hippie artisanship, uh, the artsy kind of thing, versus the uh, the sort of brutal mar market forces that really shape their lives. And they they can't they can't really challenge the the market forces because they live inside them. Um, but they also sort of resent the kind of encroachment on um, on their individual autonomy that those those sort of uh, present. Um, so it's it's, a, it's an uncomfortable position to be in. Definitely. And I mean, the interesting things they get at is that, like, management can't actually control the spaces of work that uh, these people work in very well, uh, because it, it seems to um, weaken or um, uh, disrupt uh, their productivity. Uh, however, um, they don't have any job security. So you're in this kind of space of 
a lot of like free production but like with the prospect of being axed at any time in the future right so there's like this combination of like liberation with like terror um, yeah yeah definitely um like it's free freedom of expression and kind of a lot of autonomy over your work but with the constant threat that like the con- the contract won't be renewed or oh if you step out of line you'll get kind of blackballed in the um the in the in that scene you'll kind of have to move to Denver instead um yeah <laughs> yeah and and uh they have a good quote here it's uh, they say that uh Work itself has become the main route to self-fulfillment for much of the virtual class. Yeah, it's a good one. And, um, like, I, I see that a lot still, either, well, it, especially because, like, this has only kind of gotten more and more prominent over time. But um, the kind of techies kind of doing a lot of side project work at the weekends to kind of keep their um, resume up to date. You know, every every time a new JavaScript framework comes out, they've got a uh do do a like a to-do list app in it to kind of yeah. put on github to um have that kind of thing it's a, it's a lot of um real absorption within within the labor they're doing um and that that's me too like i'm a, I'm a programmer i this is all this is all so resonant because i've i've lived it and um kind of grown pretty disillusioned with it as well so it's it's nice to know that um i guess what i like about these 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 two pieces is that like uh when when I found myself thinking, God, this this really isn't this really isn't a dignified way to live, is it? Um, I'm not the only one thinking that, and in, in fact, people were pointing this stuff out in 1995 <laughs> when I when I was yeah, still in school. Yeah, that's what I really appreciate about um, this essay. In a way, is that they picked that stuff out so early um, when it wasn't so clearly established what the sort of life path of a programmer was, <laughs> right? <laughs> when you hadn't seen generations before you kind of go through the same process and seen where they ended up, um, uh, they were able to have some kind of foresight in a way on that. And I think that's a uh, pretty, pretty uh, on point, pretty mm. impressive. Yeah. Um, I suppose while while we're quote, quoting more or less directly from the the piece as well, I think there's um there's a really nice bit where they kind of talk about the the ambiguity inside the Californian ideology and that it's like a it's a highly contradictory vision of a digital future um, and is is basically a kind of a hybrid faith that like combines uh, as we've said a couple of times and it is a theme that keeps coming up over and over again it it combines the new left with the new right and it does so by criticizing neither of them right. Um, it, it offers no. Th- this ideology offers no critique for either of its components. Um, it just sort of smashes them together, and then lets them sit in a context of kind of affluence, where you know, ar- arguably, you, you don't really need ideology so much when uh, you don't have very much to lose because you just show up at your kind of overpaid media job, and um, that stretches on for decades, and you don't really need to think very hard about the. Um, the ideology that underlines uh, the life you live, you know? Yeah, well, it kind of gets to, like, that idea that, you know, there's that famous quote from, I think it was from Raymond Williams, that, like, ideology is the imaginary resolution of real contradictions. Um, And the imaginary resolution here comes through technological determinism, right? Like, oh, maybe there's a contradiction between um, the power of money and Jeffersonian democracy. 
but let's not think about it because as long as we work hard enough, we're going to produce the network technologies that will re- resolve these contradictions by themselves, mm. right? That's a that's a term that keeps coming up in the piece as well. This uh, Jeffersonian uh, democracy, and it's. Uh, I think that's. It seems that both the new left and the new right are, are both into creating, but they're they come at it from. There's this kind of repeating theme of like. Um, there's these two camps of people who observe the same phenomena and kind of come at it from two different, very different angles. Um, so they they see the technology that's emerging, and one camp sees it as the the possibility to create like social revolution and to create like a a high tech gift economy essentially, and that's your sort of open source guys and a lot of those kind of people. And then the other crowd, uh, mostly on the right, um, see it more as an opportunity for a. a an electronic marketplace where there's the possibility of entrepreneurial success and that's the um the carrot that's kind of dangled in front of everyone to get them to participate um and that the, that kind of crowd uh, kind of in, they intended to sort of wear away the social and political and legal orders and replace it with just like completely unmediated interaction between individuals um and software entities in a marketplace that's right. Yeah. And I think uh, another interesting point they bring up is that there is kind of a background to this stuff in um, like modernization theory, actually. Um, like they talk about like Ithiel de Solopool being kind of behind the like Gingrich affiliated sort of institutional pro market uh, approaches uh, to this issue. Um, and also like point out that. A lot of the assumptions that go with um, this kind of tech ideology uh, come out of like sort of what they call macho sci-fi, um, right? Yeah, the, the sci-fi <laughs> of your Heinlein, etc. Uh, I believe uh, Asimov comes up there, um, and. Uh, uh, I think like Heinlein is a pretty good example, though. But the thing that the thing that came up for me immediately when I when I saw the macho sci-fi um, and uh, how like you have these sort of like suave and savvy uh, men uh, who go out on the frontier and and uh, get things done um, was the like tabletop RPG traveler, right? Um, yeah, because it's it's totally that right. Like the premise of the of the um game is that you know humanity has gone out into space and there's this whole frontier and you're going to do trades and you are going to like dupe the natives and you know the natural (laughs) ingenuity of of humans uh is going to sort of like win out over everybody else um and i feel it's, it's like kind of like for a more recent example it's kind of like the perspective you get in um like mass effect yeah, uh, the first game, like where it's like, oh, there's like this established cons- council of aliens out on this frontier. I mean, it's not a frontier to them, but it is to us. Uh, and like, just because we've we've got the the gumption and the and the wits, um, we're gonna be the ones who are indispensable and and uh, rise to the the center of galactic society, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's um, that actually does come up later in the piece as well. This kind of like uh, that uh, many elements of this ideology are rooted in the mythologization of um, 
the kind of founders of America or all the kind of uh, strange syphilitic sociopaths that went west and did all that kind of like you know trading and hunting and all that kind of that, that <laughs> yeah, exactly. ideology you know um, that does come up slightly later as well um, it was a very direct yeah and, and it, it was it was a very very powerful idea at this time it might be um, I mean I'm sure we have some listeners who didn't live through like or weren't growing up in the 90s um, and this idea of like cyberspace as a frontier uh, was just overwhelming um, in in culture at that time. Uh, there was a lot of buy-in to this idea, um, even though it seems like sort of on the face of it to be totally absurd in retrospect. <laughs> um, it was like, yeah, the idea that like cyberspace was an actual space and that like the frontier was limitless it was endless right it it was it was uh you know like later on in the discussion they talk about like these uh people were talking about like the death of matter um and just like or sorry this was uh i, I think this was a, in the graber piece mm, right yeah uh they were talking about yeah so like one of gingrich's advisors uh, i forget their name uh, was, they were it wasn't toffler it was the the other guy <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, but the the point is that like this idea of like sort of this immaterial frontier where you could live out this Jeffersonian fantasy. My my communications professor used to always talk about it as like homesteading on the digital frontier. Um, uh, it it was very very powerful. Um, yeah, and it really gripped people. Uh, even though like. Yeah, there's so many problems of thinking that way. It <laughs> Definitely. Just, people just turned off their brains. Um, yeah, and bought into this, really desperately bought into it. Um, so Gingrich, Newt Gingrich and Alvin Toffler, they come up in both pieces, actually. Um, and they're, they're examples of, uh, I think, what even Gingrich himself describes himself as a conservative futurist. Um, right. And it's, it's this, again, this kind of contrast between, like, it's the same phenomena, but you've got different camps of people coming at it from different angles where... Um, this these conservative crowd see the technological development as being kind of dangerous and like threatening the social order and needing a lot of guidance and interference from them of course to uh ensure that um it all turns out the way they want it to and like gingrich was was big into um this idea that the united states would need to transition into being like an information age um, economy and away from like a materialist uh, base, and that that seems to have very much informed the the Californian crowd. Yeah, definitely. Um, he was kind of their guy in Washington for a while, um, and 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 you know, like Toffler actually got hit a lot of his ideas from uh, Marxism because he used to be a Marxist and then kind of like transition towards being a much more conservative figure um and kind of this this guru figure in the media uh who is advising gingrich but um definitely they were pushing those ideas and like you know toffler was like a best-selling author he was kind of like the thomas friedman of his time um and uh i i think one thing to mention there is like if you want to know like where Gingrich's politics were coming from. 
I just remember uh, in the last time that he ran for the Republican leadership, the central points of his platforms uh, of his platform were that uh, we should reinstate child labor and that um, <laughs> oh, uh, Pinochet did nothing wrong and we should all look up to him. Uh, yeah, no, no joke. Like that's exactly what his platform was, <laughs> and he was just making speeches about the glories of child labor and how. Mm. We just we just got to bring it back, you know. It's it's we're on the electronic frontier, right? I mean, yeah, I mean you can have um, children. <laughs> little laboring. house on the electronic frontier, right? I just have this vision of like uh, just warehouses full of children with like fucking VR headsets strapped to their faces, and they're like laboring in um, in this wonderful cyberspace, neon soaked kind of uh, frontier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's grim. <laughs> but this, this, this is the the roots of this kind of these kind of ideas uh, that have really shaped where um, the last couple of decades have gone. Um, but then, so like the authors then kind of take a bit of a detour to kind of talk about the myth of the free market. Um, so they, they kind of take a take a stab at like deflating some of these ideas, and it's um, basically that like uh, capitalists have this kind of like really. Uh, inflated sense of their own resourcefulness, and it's all this myth of like, oh, these 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 strapping sort of guys who like pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and they have the the grit and determination to found these tech companies, all this kind of stuff. But it kind of actually turns out that like the vast majority of like meaningful technological progress has been uh, government funded uh, or fun right. funded by massive subsidies, and go going as far back as like the difference engine was financed yeah. by the British government. Um, most of the internet and like uh, computerization was financed by uh, military budgets in the United States. Um, and it's it's not only that, but it's also like that the, the Silicon Valley tech stuff is also predicated on the existence of the kind of DIY gift economy of open source. Um, so when, when somebody tells you about this... Um, yeah, these these like completely self-made uh, tech billionaire people who completely and fully deserve all the compensation they've ever gotten. It's all a lie. <laughs> it's all nonsense. It's um, they're standing on the shoulders of giants the same as anyone else. It's just they've yeah. Kind of managed to I feel like it. in a in a way, um, the situation in China where they've sort of created these billionaires out of these state-owned companies is a little bit more honest right it's like it's very clear that even though you know like jack mock dresses like steve jobs like he clearly got where he was through uh his connections in the communist party so like the state connection is like right there in your face right it's um, much more transparent <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, but uh, another point that they bring up, which I think is very good, is that it's not just the internet technologies that are owed to the state. It's like California itself as a place where all this could happen was a result of state infrastructure projects on an enormous scale. Right. So like the Californian ideology is an entirety uh, can be looked at from that perspective. Yeah, because without the uh, without the state funding and all the all the money that poured from east to west in those kind of early days, California would still be a barren fucking wasteland that nobody would want to live in. <laughs> yeah, and I mean th this is like I think the thing that they kind of like I've heard this argument many times from uh, people uh, 
dealing with kind of issues in in Western America and Western Canada that, you know, like, well, a lot of this stuff just comes from, like, state projects uh, on a massive scale. So, like, why are people so ignorant about this stuff? Um, I guess it's, you know, it's less excusable in the case of, of tremendously wealthy individuals in Silicon Valley. But uh, the, the sort of background that I found in general is that um, it's true that state intervention did uh, make development in, in the West, in Western North America possible. Uh, however, that state intervention was tied very deeply to uh, East, like East Coast capital. Um, yeah. And often that state intervention didn't benefit the people who live there all that much. Uh, it was more about creating the conditions for them to be hyper exploited by East Coast capital. Um, and uh, oftentimes it meant <clears throat> driving out small producers and replacing it with like company store style terrible resource extraction arrangements. Um, so a lot of this kind of idealization of homesteading on the electronic frontier, it has a kind of background in the history of North America there where people are resentful of big government because of the experiences that people had in the past with big capital being tied to it. Um, and there's an idealization of like that time before uh, big capital came in and took everything over, which you can see in uh, shows like Deadwood. Um, but you know, it's 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 this idea that like yeah, you can live free on the frontier and you can just take all the land you want from native people. Um, yeah. Or usually that part's usually left out. So but, that's, um, yeah. <laughs> that's a great opportunity to kind of say into the next, the next part of the, um, of the piece where they, the authors talk about how the rightward drift in the Californian ideology over time um, is kind of predicated on this, uh, this belief in the myth of the self-sufficient individual but a and it, that's it's kind of like an idealized version of the the founders of the country and the you know the founders of that area of the country you know the the people who went west all those kind of daring individuals but it completely ignores and willfully ignores the fact that those those people's prosperity was built on the suffering of others like you just said like they they cleared native peoples out of the way um and it's kind of like there's just no just no acknowledgement of that at all. And it, it has parallels in um, even in the contemporary sort of culture. Uh, and for a while, the, the authors kind of take a detour to talk about Jefferson himself. And like this, again, the phrase Jeffersonian democracy has come up quite a few times in the piece. Um, but Jefferson is a good example of this kind of person who, you know, publicly championed freedom and self-sufficiency for everyone and owned slaves. You know, there was no, no talk of the freedom or self-sufficiency for them. Um, and there's kind of a really interesting little anecdote where on his like plantation where he kept, you know, 200 or whatever, uh, human beings as, as, uh, as property, um, he liked to kind of tinker around and invent things. And he was just, you know, a little inventor guy, again, another thing that's kind of lionized in the culture. Uh, and one of his inventions was the dumbwaiter, 
that little box that kind of like delivers food from the kitchen to uh toward you know the dining room wherever it's it's going to be consumed and by doing that he'd kind of inserted this mediation between him and the labor he depended on yeah that's right and uh it's it's very very telling um kind of uh relationship that like i mean i don't know how much that says about how jefferson ran his plantation but like it definitely feels like oh yeah like that's totally the way that the valley works in terms of um the racialized labor force that supports all of this um culture uh of uh, these these tech uh visionaries and tech workers who make far more money than the people who are there to serve them yeah absolutely there's this uh, enormous stratification um and you know the stratification's only gotten worse over time um and yeah and all these all these people who will they'll chew your ear off about how they're they're self-made self-sufficient all this kind of thing and their um their existence depends on uh fleets of people who are kept in a much worse sort of stage or lower station than themselves um and it's it's really telling that a lot of the um a lot of the the big apps and uh you know services that are kind of coming out of the valley are often aimed at um removing contact with that underclass you know you've got the um, a service that brings your groceries to you instead of going to you know the supermarket and having to look at people you know um or even that that, mm-hmm. that fucking bodega thing which still still boils my blood <laughs> yeah. still can't get over that yeah it's like oh it's so vile it's disgusting because um, like the the explicit intent is i want to go and get snacks but i don't want to interface with brown people yeah you know that's right and then they had the, the gall to borrow the name bodega which is like they're almost universally uh, like immigrant-run businesses and small businesses in, uh, in in local communities, but then for uh, you know very overcompensated uh, tech people to then say, uh, you know what, I'd, I'd rather abstract that away in such a way that I don't need to deal with it. It's it's identical to the dumbwaiter, where you know Jeff, Jefferson's kind of deep neurological motivation there was that. He probably felt a gnawing sense of guilt and horror at what he was participating in, but didn't want to interface with it. Um, and I think the same thing is true of the valley and like any any sort of culture or um, society that tries to emulate that kind of ideology. Yeah, that that's definitely true. And I mean, I think it's important to remember that, you know, at the same time that Gingrich was pushing these kind of tech policies as part of congress um you know the 90s was a very very intensely reactionary time um and the war on uh people of color in america that was going on at the same time as this was like real and very intense so uh we kind of treat histories of these things i at least i feel like in the past we've at least kind of treated the history of these two phenomena separately but they can be thought of together as well right like i'm uh i mean maybe you get a little bit more of a sort of integrated picture in something like uh mike davis's work on los angeles but like even then that's not really valley culture right so 
um, I think uh, it definitely is something to keep in mind when there's all this talk about uh, Jeffersonian democracy in cyberspace, that at the same time, you know, the war on drugs was happening in full intensity. And even when a democratic president got into office, he did so on uh, the back of very, like, clear uh, dog whistle politics about uh, putting black people in their place, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what was going on at this time. And the kind of struggles that we see right now in Silicon Valley um, about these issues, they have a root in the 90s, for sure. I mean, they go back further than that. But you can see at the time when the Californian ideology was the most intensely developed and really had nothing to say about racial issues in America, um, there was, in fact, very intense struggle about those issues that was still happening right. and was related. Which is, it's especially, um, it's especially glaring in given that, like, the roots of the Californian ideology are in, like, at, at least half of it is from the, like, civil rights and hippie sort of movements, which really put the um, those social struggles at their center. And then that got kind of wrapped up in the right-wing stuff and got really stripped down and subsumed in such a way that, like, the only thing that was remaining was the cultural signifiers, the... Um, the the veganism and the going to yoga and such um and didn't actually have any of the social um justice activity left like at all um that was completely yeah like removed. absolutely nothing yeah right um it's it just wasn't even on the radar uh, because I think that, you know, one of the things about the digital frontier or the cyberspace frontier that was so appealing was that it was an empty frontier that was not inhabited by, like, native people or indigenous people. Um, it was it was open to being inhabited without any of these, like, fears about um, conflict. Uh, social conflict about um, colonization or any of those kinds of things, right? So in a way, I think that the ideology uh, did kind of offer the promise of a space that was free from these issues. It wasn't in fact, but in, in, in its ideological manifestation, I think that was part of the appeal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... And it, it's it's taken the intervening years for it to kind of play out, and then kind of um, I think we're we're just kind of starting to climb the slope of kind of finally realizing like what the impacts of uh, this digital frontier actually will be on society. Like I think the the all the all the noise around the um, the role of social media platforms in uh, informing the outcome of the 2016 election uh, is the sort of tip of the iceberg. And there's fertile ground there for like a really serious uh, analysis and uh, a look at um, just what, what, the, what the result of uh, establishing that cyber frontier actually has been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like they talk here, they say... Um 
abandoning democracy and social solidarity, the Californian ideology, dreams of a digital nirvana inhabited solely by liberal psychopaths. Um, <laughs> and like, I feel like, wow, that was prescient. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I, I just wrote under there, like, uh, NeoGAF question mark. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, like a lot of sort of like really toxic, um, internet message board, social media culture, I mm. think can kind of be attributed to that sort of mentality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kind of the mentality of having having a blank slate to play with, and then making kind of the, the worst possible thing out of it. Um, well, and and just being like, like if you are not a liberal psychopath, then get the hell out. Yeah, right. Yeah, like too. this is our space, right? Yeah, because um, it still has that um, the problem of like that. Even if you had a completely blank and abstract space, the space is inevitably shaped by the settlers. Like it's it's kind of like you 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 bring the society you came from into the new place, um, and um, all the kind of the new terrain then um, amplifies and like exaggerates all the characteristics of the people who arrived there. Yeah, and I mean I understand where some of the enthusiasm for this came from in the sense that in the early sort of period of the internet. Um, you had these like very close knit communities that were formed based on like the institutional origins of the internet or just on the fact that like the interest groups and like the economic availability of these technologies was very limited. Um, and so there was maybe this sense of like, well, there definitely was a sense if you read the histories of this stuff, there definitely was a sense that like these close knit communities are what everything is going to be in the future. Right. Like, I mean, I've seen this on, you know, in kind of have a bit of a revival with Slack on the internet, right. That you have these very close knit, closed online communities, um, or like largely closed communities. Um, and people saying like, you know, this is the only good part of the internet. This is the only good corner of the internet. Um, and, yeah and so you have to you have to keep that in mind when you think about why people were so enthusiastic about the internet because i mean again a lot of these people were like social misfits or oddballs and they did find a kind of belonging in these communities the difficulty is that they kind of obscured or tried to cut off as much as possible the actual origins of where those communities came from, how they came about, what the social history was, and what the social context was of what was going on, right? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, like, I, I, I definitely understand, like, um, it's it's like it's, 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 it's a hard thing to balance because I, 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 I acknowledge I am being quite critical. And um, I think it's more that, like, in retrospect, it's kind of, like, kind of funny how it it's sort of like it, it's it's easy to look back on this as a very naive optimism, um, but I could totally see being in that time and space, probably being completely swept up in it too. Um, it's a very understandable thing. the 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 Slack thing is really interesting actually because um, there's that sort of uh, there's that sort of general thing about how 
early-ish internet had like really great um like special interest forums and stuff and it was really excellent uh excellent community and like and that's that's kind of how i got into technology actually was through um uh audio engineering forums where uh just like vast troves of information and like um trade secrets and stuff were being dumped in this kind of like really wonderful culture actually and then as as facebook kind of took over and twitter kind of became a thing that kind of died down and the a lot of those populations kind of died off uh, a lot of conversation moved on to facebook which had a much more uh i don't know ethereal kind of feeling to it where like it wasn't as permanent as forums were but i hadn't realized yeah you're right that like with slack um you're getting the resurgence of those kind of like small bubbles uh because they're all usually invite only um small bubbles um of like really high quality discussion it's kind of an interesting cyclical yeah. pattern there yeah and i mean the, the the really sort of famous story is like you had people on sort of mailing lists on the early internet uh who were like high level physicists having discussions about physics and then you'd have the kid who would come online and start posting to the mailing list uh, asking for help with his physics homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was when they were like, oh, no, it's all over. Like, we got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of a cyclical process for sure. Mm, definitely. Uh, um, but, yeah, and so, like, the, this, this essay then closes out with... Um, a sort of a discussion of alternatives um, and particularly pointing towards Europe and a kind of a, a proclamation that um, Europe needs to assert its own uh, idea of what the future of technology and society would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, as we, we didn't really mention this, but these researchers were working out of the UK. Right. Yeah, that's um, that's an important one. So they had a, they had some amount of distance from. Uh, from the United States and from California, and the, I think the UK is a good. Um, the UK, like, has been in the last fifty or so years, has been that kind of bridge between uh, Europe and the United States. Um, they point particularly towards uh, the Minitel uh, project in France, where uh, the French state um, acknowledged the kind of need for this kind of new communications technology and like planned and built this like nationwide. Um, telecoms thing where you could like uh look at like weather stuff and uh sports results and like buy cinema tickets and all that kind of kind of thing um but that from the french perspective uh like french french people don't have the same aversion to state intervention that a lot of americans have where for the for the french and for a lot of europeans the state is seen as like being an integral part of society and being like a vanguard for kind of um ensuring the security and safety of its citizens rather than being a kind of a threat that needs to be batted away right and i mean the minitel example is pretty interesting um because it was provided at such a large scale to the citizens of france right um and so uh what ended up happening with that system um and the ways that it kind of diverged from the original design intent uh, was a really sort of interesting social experiment um, just because it had a kind of diffusion among the population that uh, personal computers in America didn't in, in, at that stage. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a key difference, definitely. Um, 
And so I think the, I think both both of these pieces uh, that we're going to talk about have this kind of bit of a pattern towards their end where they sort of start to zoom out a little bit and get more and more, um, they get less and less sort of detailed and sort of both taper off into a um, a broad sort of uh, you know a push against postmodernism and instead a call for a uh, return to the modern or a rebirth of the modern. Um, to kind of outline a desire to um, create a new positive vision of where technology could go, a vision that explicitly rejects any kind of techno-apartheid or, um, you know, highly stratified um, hierarchical kind of society, um, a strategy for that which embraces hypermedia and radical social change and is connected to a wider culture, um, which I think we're, we're in... We're, we're still in need of that. <laughs> it's just yeah, as true like, now. They say that uh, we need to find ways to think socially and politically about the machines we develop. And my kind of question coming away from this article was, have we? <laughs> I don't think we have. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, um, that just doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, we're, I, I, think, I think, worse off now in that regard. Because I think, like, we've now got, like, really really deep penetration of uh communications technology into every aspect of life and and less less analysis of that than ever before like there's a real dearth of thinking <laughs> like not, not not even just left thinking but just like thinking of any kind <laughs> about this topic <laughs> yeah like um you know sort of an obvious thing that kind of gets brought up but not really thought about in much depth is like you know the internet of things like it's just like it's kind of like should we deploy com communications and surveillance technology in these ways um should we deploy computing technology in these ways and it's kind of just like shrug i guess we'll leave it up to the market and the consumers to decide like, it's always left i don't know to, um which is which is the same as like a parallel problem of like uh, should we be polluting? Should we clean it up? I don't know. Leave it to the market to decide. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, it, uh, it's, it's such tiresome uh, lack of engagement from those kind of people, you know, that like, it's just like shrug. I don't know. Maybe the market will take care of it. And it never fucking does. It's um, yeah, it just gets worse and worse. Like, <laughs> the, the, yeah, I feel like it, it's, it's very much a thing that proceeds on the basis of like, small use decisions that people make or purchasing decisions that people make over time and it just kind of we have this sort of gradual slide into a sort of new paradigm of technological use without really having debated the possible consequences of it at any kind of scale right yeah like, yeah there's obviously the the like luddite neo-luddite articles that always come out whenever there's a new wave of technological deployment but like i feel that's not really what the authors of this article were talking about right? no no and uh just to kind of expand on that a little like the the pushback is often kind of like you're, you're supposed to just push back as an individual and like vote with your wallet is the thing that often comes up um which is just it, it's silly it's like um we need we need a social process for dealing with this stuff like it, you you can't as an individual realistically kind of it's it's like uh trying to trying to push back the tide 
as an individual, it's it's completely it's not completely pointless, but like um, because your your choices as an individual are informed by the context around you. Well, it, it's very ridiculous this kind of idea that voting with your wallet is what should decide things because these are technologies that are designed from the bottom up on the basis of network effects yeah and are marketed in terms of the efficacy of network effects are conceived of economically in terms of network effects but then when it comes to the consumer's evaluation of the technology we're supposed to pretend that none of these things exist right yeah that it's um that you 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 somehow have complete frictionless freedom in in the face of all the energy that's gone into ensuring that you don't um, and what i what i found in terms of discussion online about these issues is that when it comes to privacy issues, um, libertarians are obviously well-informed, right? Like, that's one of their main things that they care about. Um, and they're also well-informed about how, like, first-mover advantage or market capture can cause lots of social problems. Uh, but the remedy that they have to go with is either um, competition or um, consumer purchasing decisions. And so there is a kind of inordinate emphasis put on consumer purchasing decisions because it's the only policy remedy they have, right? Like, that's that's the thing you can go to. Is So it's like there's a kind of... Um, fanatical discussion about what technologies you use and how you engage with your computing devices um, on a personal level uh, because there's there's really nothing available to that kind of politics outside of that um, and it, it really doesn't go anywhere because it's like it's rare that the pushback from the libertarian consumer crowd actually gets in the way of you know google just hoovering up all of our information no yeah that's that's the bit that never really push back against um despite their kind of like supposed dedication to liberty and um individual autonomy um yeah and that that sort of concludes um the californian ideology um yeah i should just just mention that the kind of direction they go in the end is to say like they need kind of like a rejuvenated social democracy that that does integrate with technological development and is more democratic um so you know obviously not getting on board with the california ideology in that sense uh and uh the the only real example i could think of like since the time they wrote that was a big success and and fell into that mold was like uh, Nokia, right? Um, because it was very much a product of Finnish social democracy. It did have a global impact. I don't really know much about the management um, and the sort of institutional arrangements that existed within Nokia and how it connected to the rest of the Finnish population. Uh, but um, it is an example, um, you know, it, 
wasn't really able to compete at the global level uh, in the end uh, because, you know, big capital is going to always win in the end when it comes <laughs> yeah. to market competition. But, um, <laughs> hey, you know, somebody gave it a shot, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that, that kind of, like... It's kind of important to remember that this does. This was published in 1995, and that's um, there. There was that sort of in the end of the article. There's that call for um, for all that stuff to happen for uh, new sort of like a kind of uh, democratic interaction with technology, especially from a European perspective. And it, it doesn't seem to have actually happened in very wide regards, except for maybe Nokia. We, we should probably look into that actually, and maybe see if there's some fertile ground. It would be very interesting to uh, talk about sort of the rise and fall of that company and how it related to society at large uh, yeah. in, in Finland. Yeah. I suspect there's probably a lot there. Um, uh, so we've we've been recording for about an hour now, and I think I think we were right in thinking that there's a lot more in these um, these two articles than uh, we could re- realistically take on at once. So um, we're probably going to leave it at that for this episode. Um, thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with the uh, next piece, uh, which is um, David Graeber's Of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit. Um, yeah, we'll see you in two weeks. See you then. See you then.